Well, for those of you that don't know me, uh, my name is Jensen Holt McNair, and I've been on staff with Veritas for like a year and a half now. I graduated from Mizzou um, in December of 2017. Uh, I got married to my husband, Sam, a little over a year ago. And a couple weeks ago, we got a puppy. And this has nothing to do with anything that we're gonna talk about tonight, but this is my dog, Oliver. And I just wanted you guys to see my puppy and appreciate him. Do we feel good? Is he cute? Oh, okay, we found some lights, cool. Well, we're gonna keep moving forward because we have lights and you've seen my dog. So I wanna start tonight by asking you all a question. What would happen if you got to the end of your life and the people around you thought that you were a letdown? That your life, it just, it wasn't impressive enough. You didn't meet expectations. How would you feel? Would, would your life have been worth it to you? Well, if you're like me, you have expectations. I think that we all have expectations. We expect things from others, from life, from ourselves. I expected college to bring me some of the greatest friends of my life, but when I got to freshman year, I didn't realize how hard it would be to find a set group of friends and how hard it was to learn how to actually be a good friend. It took a lot more time than I thought. Around the same time, I thought that I had this expectation to be the best in all my classes. I wanted to get that 4.0, and then I took Spanish, and it turns out that's my downfall. I got a C, and with that first C, I realized that a 4.0 wasn't gonna happen. Later on, I expected getting a boyfriend might make my life feel a little bit more stable, like I had a future maybe. But it turns out that people are really messy. Relationships, they don't always work out, they're hard, and adding someone else into your life doesn't actually make it more stable, it makes it a little bit more complicated. So that didn't work out. Later down the road, I got married, I had a wedding, and I expected that day to be like perfect. I had the Pinterest boards, I had all my Excel sheets, I'm type A, they were color coordinated, so it was gonna be like a really good day. And then I woke up on the day of my wedding throwing up because I had a stomach bug. That was some big failed expectations there. Turns out brides, they aren't immune to illness. For those of you that are worried, it turned out fine. I ate some saltines and it, was, it went away. Still got married. But I think that we all do this. We put our hopes in the things around us to fix our problems, to make us feel important, to show the people around us how impressive we are. And then when it finally comes, when the big moment's there, it just, isn't what we thought it would be. Sometimes, and maybe even most times, reality, it doesn't really deliver on what we thought it would. But you and I, we also don't live up to expectations. We let the people around us down. We live in a culture that has really high expectations from us. We're bombarded with what it means to be a good girlfriend, boyfriend, intern, friend, student, human. We were constantly told what it means to be a good person. I mean, we have these expectations thrown at us all the time. When you start a new job, you get a list of everything that they're gonna expect from you. When you walk into the first day of classes, your professor's gonna hand you a syllabus and it's gonna tell you, hey, here's everything I expect from you this semester. When you start a new relationship, you have a DTR. You sit down, you determine, hey, what can we expect from each other now that we're dating? we feel the pressure of expectations. And eventually, we let those people down. It's inevitable. You show up late to work, you forget a big assignment, you say something that you regret to someone that you really love. 
you fail under the weight of the expectations. Research actually confirms our experience. One study shows that over the past 20 years, our perception of others' expectation for us, what we expect from others, and the expectations that we place on ourselves has drastically increased. One of the lead researchers in this study concluded with this. Today's young people are competing with each other in order to meet societal pressures to succeed. And they feel that perfectionism is necessary in order to feel safe, socially connected, and of worth. Do you hear the effect that this has on us? As expectations increase, so does the pressure to be perfect. And our inability to meet those expectations of perfection leaves us feeling unsafe, unconnected, and unworthy. We worry so much about living up to those standards that we fail to enjoy and recognize the things that are around us. It's no wonder that research has found that perfectionism is tied to high rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide. Our culture, it's facing an epidemic that means not being impressive, not living up to expectations, is something with the power to become extremely harmful in our lives. We have an expectation problem. This problem, it isn't a new problem. If you were here last week, you know that this summer, we're going through people in the Old Testament who lived messy lives. They didn't meet the expectations of others. They weren't good enough. And tonight, we're gonna be talking about someone who struggles with what we struggle with. He wasn't impressive enough. He didn't meet the expectations that were placed on him. His name is Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, he's not a guy that we've probably heard a lot about. And so for us to really understand his story, we're going to have to talk a little bit about the context surrounding his story. And then we're going to read quite a bit of Old Testament scripture. So buckle up and hang tight. So last week, if you were here, Justin talked about Abraham and Sarah, and he talked about how God had promised Abraham and Sarah a child and that he would make them into a prosperous nation. They were supposed to be a blessing to the people around them by being obedient to his call. But it turns out that after a couple hundred years, things haven't really gone as planned. The Israelites end up in slavery in Egypt, and Exodus tells us that God takes them out of that slavery but just a little bit after that, they start worshiping a golden calf. Once you get to the book of Kings, we see that the nation of Israel is in the midst of a civil war. They're fighting against each other and they end up splitting in two. Eventually, God exiles the Israelites to Babylon. The temple is destroyed and they're taken from the promised land for 70 years because of their disobedience. Could you imagine the disappointment and shame that they felt from not meeting God's expectations? But just when it looks like the story's over, there's hope. We find that the Lord's promise of a deliverer, a Messiah that would restore them, he's still coming. So now, after 70 years in exile, the Lord begins to deliver his people again. This time, he uses a foreign king, Cyrus, Cyrus is the king of Persia, and he's sending back any Israelite who wants to return to Jerusalem to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Not only that, but he also commands the people of the land to send them with gold and silver, with offerings and with livestock. This is a fun side note that I like, but when the Israelites left Egypt, they were also sent away with gifts from the Egyptians of gold and silver and offerings. And so we see this parallel here. 
the Lord is again providing for his people as they begin the second exodus back to the promised land. Imagine being an Israelite at this time. You're about to return home to rebuild and restore the temple. This is the place where God has chosen to dwell with his people here on earth. When the temple was destroyed by Babylon, the Israelites probably would have assumed that God had abandoned them. But now imagine the hope, the expectations that start to arise as they realize that they're going back home. They're gonna rebuild that temple. And imagine the joy they felt when they realized that that long-expected Messiah, well, well, he's still coming. Enter Zerubbabel. So Zerubbabel is a descendant of David, and David is the one whose line is said that the Messiah would come from. And so Zerubbabel is the one in charge. He's the governor as they're heading back to Israel. And so all of the expectations that the Israelites have kind of seem to be resting on Zerubbabel's shoulders. Could he be the one who will restore them to their former glory? Is he the long-expected Messiah? Well, we're picking up his story just as the Israelites are returning to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild. We're going to start in Ezra 3.7. Then they gave money to the masons and, and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of the people began the work. So the Israelites, they're preparing to rebuild this temple. And they're really careful to follow exactly what King Solomon did whenever he built the first temple that was destroyed. They get logs from Lebanon because that's what Solomon did. They start rebuilding in the second month because that's what Solomon did. They want to get this right. This is their place of worship, the place where the Lord dwells. And after the devastation of the exile, they want to get this right. So let's see how it turns out, starting in verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid." Here we read that the Israelites, they're actually doing it. They laid the foundation of the temple. Progress has begun. They've been waiting 70 years for this. So they get everyone together and they start to celebrate because they're finally doing it. Expectations are high. Things are going really, really well. And then verse 12. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard from far away. So imagine this. They get the whole assembly together for a big celebration and people are weeping. These aren't 
tears of joy. These aren't people just kind of over in the corner, like silent tears streaming, streaming down their face. This is loud weeping. It's so loud, in fact, that you couldn't really tell if people were celebrating or crying or both. Why? Why are these people weeping instead of celebrating? This is supposed to be a great day. Things are happening. Well, we find an explanation in the small book of Haggai, specifically in chapter two. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, to Joshua, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem like nothing? Did you hear it? They had unmet expectations. These Israelites, they're weeping because the new temple foundation, it's unimpressive. It's unimpressive compared to what they had before. This new temple, it's not come anywhere near their expectations. Even the prophets speaking the word of the Lord say that it's really nothing to be excited about. It seems like nothing. Here are actually some digital renderings, we should have them up there, of what Solomon's temple and this new temple would have looked like side by side. So Zerubbabel's job was to rebuild, to restore, to meet expectations. But look at what he had to live up to. A king in the height of his power with riches to spare built that first temple. The expectations probably overwhelmed him. And so when he finally goes to display his hard work, people cry. Even worse, we learn in the next few verses that opposition arises from local people who disapproved of the Israelites rebuilding the temple. So they complain and work on the temple stops for 15 more years because the new ruler of the land decrees, puts out a decree that makes them stop building. Zerubbabel, he doesn't have the riches to rebuild the temple like its former glory. And he doesn't have the power to continue building when he faces opposition. This is a big reminder that he isn't king. He can't give them that triumphant return that they wanted. He let them down. He didn't meet their expectations. Can you imagine being Zerubbabel at this point? I mean, he's facing the realization that he didn't meet their expectations. His failure must have crushed him. Have you felt like that before? Have you felt the crushing weight of expectations? Zerubbabel, he tried to live up to the expectations of the Israelites, but he didn't end up impressing anyone. Who are you trying to impress? What areas of your life are you striving to meet the expectations of others around you? To be impressive enough for them to care, to tell you that you're doing a good job, it could be your professors, your friends, your followers. It could be your parents. Honestly, it's probably anyone and everyone. We all want to be impressive to someone. And when we don't live up to expectations, it leaves us doubting ourselves. Am I good enough? Does anyone think that I'm worth anything? If I can't get this one thing right, what good am I? If the people in my life aren't impressed, do I even matter? These thoughts can be devastating. If you felt this, you're in good company. 
you're not the only one. The same dynamics, they were at work in the life of Zerubbabel. But what do we do with all this? Is there a way forward from these devastating thoughts? Well, Zerubbabel, he's asking these same questions. And the good news is that God doesn't let his story end here. If we go back to the verses in Haggai, we hear more from the Lord. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. I will fill this house with glory. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. So there are a few specific things that we can learn from what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. The first is that in verses four and five, when the Lord says, be strong and do not fear, we can probably assume that this means that Zerubbabel, he was afraid. He needed strength. God knew the weight of the expectations that were on him. And he knew that it would be tempting to let that pressure overwhelm him and keep him from moving forward. So he encourages him. Second, the Lord tells Zerubbabel in verse four, I am with you. He reminds him that his earthly failure does not disqualify him from God's story. Zerubbabel, he's still wanted. He's still accepted. Maybe not by the people that he's leading or by his peers, but by God, the one who really matters. And third, in verse nine, the Lord tells Zerubbabel that he is the one who will fill the house. He is the one who will grant peace. Not Zerubbabel. God is the one who is at work. It is his spirit, his presence that brings glory to our earthly work, not the praise or admiration of others. See, when God sees the new temple, he doesn't tell Zerubbabel to pick himself up and try harder. He doesn't tell him to come up with a plan B to fix the current state of the temple. He doesn't scold him for not being impressive enough. He doesn't say, do more, be better. No, instead, God's first response is to encourage and to comfort. He reminds Zerubbabel that it isn't up to him to bring restoration and glory to the temple. Zerubbabel, he doesn't have to be the impressive one, and God still chooses to use him in his plans. Continuing in Haggai, we hear how the, how the Lord will use Zerubbabel. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel. I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. So these words, they're a declaration that the Lord is at work and that he's chosen Zerubbabel to fulfill those plans. Amidst the disappointment, amidst the pain, Zerubbabel, he still has a job to do. He still has purpose. In making Zerubbabel his signet ring, God is saying that he's reinstating the promise that the Davidic line will be the one that supplies the Messiah. Zerubbabel has been chosen not only to rebuild the temple, but to reestablish the line of the Messiah in Jerusalem. God may have sent his people into exile, but his promise of a Messiah stands firm. You and I, we need to hear the same things that the Lord is telling Zerubbabel. 
You might be terrified of letting the people around you down or not meeting their expectations, but do not fear the Lord is with you. When you feel the crushing weight of expectations, the Lord is with you. When you fail to impress the people around you, the Lord is with you. He doesn't abandon you because you aren't impressive. Instead, he does the work through you. He is the one who will take your life and use it for his kingdom, for his story. And he's the one who eventually provided the Messiah for us. See, Zerubbabel, he wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the one who would redeem and restore the nation of Israel, but someone in his line was, Jesus. God came down to earth as a human and his name was Jesus. This was the Messiah that Zerubbabel and the nation of Israel were waiting for. They were waiting for him to restore Jerusalem and to break the bondage that other nations had on, him, had on them. They expected their Messiah to bring power and glory, glory back to the nation of Israel. And he was finally here. But guess what? Jesus, he didn't meet their expectations. Jesus was born amidst scandal into poverty. He was a carpenter who was put to death by the ruling powers of his day. He didn't bring Israel the political freedom that they expected. He wasn't impressive at all by earthly standards. But that wasn't his purpose. You see, Jesus came not to obtain power and glory for himself, but to die on a cross and to be raised to life again. He came to take your sin and my sin and to bury it in the grave so that we can be free to live our lives in faithful obedience to him. Our sin, it's the main reason why we let the people around us down. We are broken. We're unable to be what people expect of us because again and again, we make the same mistakes. We hurt the same people. Ultimately, the reason why our sin is so devastating, it isn't because of all the people that we let down. It's because we're breaking our relationship with God. Every time we sin, we choose other things over our Savior. When Jesus came as our Messiah, he knew that we would fail him again and again. But he still became an unimpressive human so that he could humbly and faithfully walk into death and redeem the very people that didn't think that he was all that impressive. He cared more about faithfully fulfilling God's plan for our redemption than he did about impressing others and living up to their expectations. And he calls us to that exact same thing. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the answer. 
this is where we find the freedom that we have been longing for. In Christ, we're released from the pressure to be perfect, to be impressive. God, he isn't looking for perfect and impressive people. He's looking for faithful people. I hope that you can see that difference. You see, God doesn't choose people because they're great. He didn't choose Zerubbabel because he was impressive. He didn't choose the nation of Israel because they were the most powerful nation. No, he chooses people who are broken, unimpressive outcasts. We don't need to be impressive to come to Jesus. He isn't looking for impressive people. He's looking for faithful people. You don't have to work harder, be smarter, or say the right things to Jesus to gain his love and acceptance. You are saved by grace through faith. In response to Jesus' faithfulness to you, all we have to do is come to him, brokenness and all, where we are now, to find rest and to faithfully follow his will. He is the one that is providing all that we need, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Our God, he's a God who calls each and every one of us to participate in his story. We're called to participate in building his kingdom here and now, whether or not the people of this world think that our part is impressive. Will you be faithful to that call? In Major League Baseball, having a home field advantage is probably something that you've heard of. Research has actually confirmed that there really is something about playing on your own home field that leads to winning more games. It all comes down to the crowd, but it's not about the crowd's influence on the players. It's not like you hear more cheering and then you hit more home runs. It's actually because of the crowd's influence on the umpire. As it turns out, if you're playing on your home field and there's a really close call to be made, an umpire is more likely to give the close call to the home team because he's afraid of the disapproval of the crowd. He doesn't want to hear people booing him. He wants to hear cheering, their praise. Umpires eventually end up compromising on their training because they want to meet the expectations of the watching crowd. And it probably makes a lot of sense to us because most of us run away from even the idea of disappointing others. We want the crowd's approval. We want their praise. But when we want to impress the people around us too much, we end up compromising on making the right calls. It might be hard to stand firm, to make the right calls, to do what we're called to do, we might actually end up sacrificing something. But we gain so much more in faithfully following Christ. Where is God calling you to be impressive, to be faithful rather than impressive? What would happen if you were more motivated by living up to the expectations of God than the expectations of the crowd? At the beginning of tonight, I asked you a question. What if you got to the end of your life and no one thought that it was impressive? It happened to Zerubbabel and it happened to Jesus. And so it could probably happen to you. Jesus, he didn't live a, faith, a life that impressed the watching world, but what he did do brought ultimate glory and victory in God's story. 
And it brought freedom from the pressure of living an impressive life to you and to me. Are you still trying to write your own story? Are you trying to make a name for yourself? Is the aim of your life to be impressive, to do something extraordinary? Or are you living a faithful life with a goal to point the people around you back to Jesus? As the music team comes back up, what would it look like for you to be faithful this summer? Maybe for you, it means spending a little bit less time on social media, curating the perfect image, and more time reading your Bible. Maybe it means you don't put up a facade in your small group, but you lean in and you choose to be vulnerable with new people. It might mean that you try to invest in friends that will hold you accountable rather than chasing after new friends or a new love interest that might bring you more status. I don't know exactly what it means for you to choose to be faithful over impressive this summer, but I do know that if you make that choice faithfully again and again, there is far greater worth in pointing the people around you to Jesus than you will ever get from being impressive. Choose a faithful life. Let the story of Zerubbabel point you to Jesus and remind you that Jesus doesn't expect perfection. He doesn't expect impressive. He just wants your faithfulness. Let that be enough. Amen.